Chapter 17 of A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith. Chapter 17. The Anstone tragedy was nearly two years old now, and six months before the first meeting of Grace and Hadley Siemens, a fair-haired, dark-eyed son had been born to the new lord of Anston Manor, and was thriving apace to the great delight of Harold and his beautiful wife, to whose loveliness the joy and dignity of motherhood had added yet another charm. In all the world it would have been hard to find a happier man and woman than these two favoured darlings of fortune who had been first brought together by the evil arts of the extraordinary criminal who, as everybody believed, had only escaped from the lifelong infamy and slavery of penal servitude through the purging fires of the crematory furnace. All that was over now, and they were doing their best to forget it, when one day, about a week after Lady Georgina's Pontifex's reception, the whole miserable story was vividly brought back to them in the most strange and striking fashion. On the 20th of June, when the London season was at its height, and everybody who had any pretensions to be thought anybody was in town, the two worlds of society and science were startled, amused and interested after their different fashions by the simultaneous appearance in all the leading British and continental journals of what was generally admitted to be the most extraordinary announcement that had ever appeared in newspaper columns. It was not in the form of an advertisement, though in some cases it was probably paid for as such, and it consisted of a detailed setting forth of the aims, objects, and working of the Institute of Psychic Science, which was described as an international establishment for the study of the higher developments of mental and moral philosophy in all their forms, exact and occult, and its main object was to be the accomplishment of the tremendous task of uniting the schools of Eastern and Western thought, which so far had been separated since the beginnings by an impassable gulf. Every branch of the vast subject was to be studied, purely on its merits and without reference to scientific or religious prejudices. Students of all races and religions were to be welcomed. Neither blood nor caste nor color were to be allowed to influence a student's career, and the sole title to admission and membership was to be ability and devotion. The strangest fact of all, however, was that no subscriptions were asked for and no fees were to be charged. On the contrary, students, if they showed special aptitude for the studies in question and were too poor to forsake their employment and devote themselves only to the work of the Institute, would not only be maintained free of charge, but would even receive salaries sufficient to support them in that ease and comfort and freedom from all the sordid cares and responsibilities of ordinary life, which was considered to be an essential condition for the proper prosecution of their studies. 
The director of the institute was the pundit Dr. Isaiah Ramel, late professor and lecturer in the University of London on Oriental Languages and Science. And from this fact alone it became clear that the million which the genius and the crimes of Jenna Hawkin had enabled him to abstract from the fortune of his victim was really about to be devoted to the object described in Sir Godfrey Anstone's self-forged will. Well, said Harry to his wife, after he had given her the gist of the strange announcement over the breakfast table, there is just this conclusion about it. Whatever one may think of the way in which they got the money, they do seem to be trying to do something with it. And, to say the least of it, that's better than levanting out of the country with it and just using it for their private ends. I wonder if the worthy pundit doctor will have the cheek to send us cards of invitation to the opening reception and conversazione. But you wouldn't go if he did, Herod, would you? She said looking up for the first time from her plate. Well, really, I don't see why we shouldn't, he replied. It's Sir Godfrey's money that's doing it. And personally, I really don't bear any grudge. That unfortunate uncle of yours was, after all, I think, only an example of great genius run a bit mad. And we must admit that he only did for his goddess science a great deal less than prosecutors have done for the honor of their creeds, and yet retained the good opinion of the world. At any rate, he has paid the last penalty a man can pay for his sins and his mistakes. And there, so far as I am concerned, is an end of the matter. It was a lot of money, but I don't think we should have been any happier with it. Death closes all accounts, and I can't say that I feel any particular rouge about it. That was said just as your own generous self would say it, dear, she said, looking at him with an expression of something like thankfulness in her eyes. And I dare say you are not far from the truth, for certainly anyone who had known him as long and as well as I did would be bound to say that he never used his powers for his own profit. On the contrary, I have known him spend weeks and even months in which he might have earned any amount of money by lecturing and scientific writing, and gained more fame and distinction besides in puzzling out some deep problem, and then perhaps in the end find himself where he began. I'm very glad to hear you speak like that, dear, she went on after a little pause, because after all, you know, he was my mother's brother. But then there is this Dr. Ramel. How can we go to his institute and make friends with him in a sort of way when, for all we know, he may have been a sort of accomplice. The answer to that, my dear Grace, he replied, returning her smile, is that we don't know, and that, moreover, we don't want to know. There is not a shred of proof of it. This daughter Ramel's antecedents are not only irreproachable, but most distinguished. And certainly, if any evidence of good faith on his part was wanted here, it is in the fact that not only is he not going to make any money out of his institute, but that he actually undertakes to spend the money very much as I think Sir Godfrey himself would have spent it. In fact, from a great many talks I have had with him, I am practically certain of it. I don't exactly know how you feel about it, but personally, 
I'm quite ready to let bygones be bygones, and as long as he's really honest about the thing, treat him as what he appears to be. That's just what I should like to do, she said, and so if we're invited, I suppose we shall go. Of course, everybody will be there. It is just the sort of thing that society with a capital S will go crazed about. They're getting tired of spiritualism and theosophy and Christian science. But this sort of thing with plenty of oriental mystery mixed up with it will just be the very thing to turn half the frivolous heads in London and perhaps some of the serious ones as well. For instance, just imagine with what enthusiasm Mrs. Rowell Grover will throw herself into it. I know that since that last scandal forced all respectable people to give up Christian science, she has been simply pinning for a new religion or something of that sort. And Princess Natiev too. You know, she has strong leanings towards occultism and mysticism and several other isms. Yes, replied Herod, pushing his plate away and getting up from the table. Mrs. Royal Rover is a very nice jolly little woman, perfectly harmless with all her fads, and the colonel is an excellent sort, quite an angel of patience, I should think. But the princess, do you know I've always had a sort of a, well, I don't quite know what to call it, not exactly dislike or suspicion, because I'm not given to prejudices, but a sort of, uh, yes, dear, so have I, Grace interrupted with a little laugh. A kind of vague distrust, a feeling that although there isn't any reason to think so, she ought to go about marked dangerous. She is beautiful in a diabolical sort of way, brilliant, universally informed, and gets into some of the best houses both here and in the country. Plenty of money too, apparently, and I'm quite certain that Georgina Pontifex would be the very last woman to take up anyone, princess or not. Who wasn't quite without reproach. Oh, by the way, she continued with a laugh, what do you think her latest ambition is said to be? Haven't an idea, he said, picking up a cigarette out of his case. From the gossip I've heard about her at the clubs, she seems compact of ambitions, and curiously enough, half the men in town rave about her devilish beauty, and her wit, and her general gorgeousness, Yet, somehow, no one seems to have a really good word to say for her. What is it? Well, Mrs. Royal Grover, who, of course, apart from her fads and new religions, is a really very shrewd little woman who knows nearly everything and everybody in her own world, told Georgina Pontifex the other day that Karen Atiev had confided to her that she had found her true affinity at last. And who, among all the impossibilities, do you think it is? Haven't a notion, he replied, between the whiffs. But I shouldn't mind making a sporting bet that it was some other woman's husband. Just like the charity of the male animal, she laughed. But for once you are wrong. Her affinity, if you please, is no other than his auriferous majesty, Hadley Siemens, Gold King, Rary King, Steamboat King, Poet, Artist, Scientist, and goodness knows how much else besides, and woman-hater, or at any rate, woman-ignorer into the bargain. The joke of it is that Her Highness talks about it in the most delightfully naive manner, and says she really doesn't care who knows it, 
even the Greek Hadley himself. Do you know, Grace, he replied, after half a dozen silent puffs at his cigarette, there's something about that man I don't like. Another masculine prejudice, I suppose, you will say, but still there it is. And more than that, I somehow have an uncomfortable sort of feeling that I either know him or have seen him before, and for the life of me I can't make out where. It's a funny thing, but there it is. The man has every possible advantage that you could imagine the face giving to anyone. He's a millionaire the Lord knows how many times over. He has more real power in his hands than a good many ruling sovereigns. He is still young, as youth goes nowadays, good-looking and marvelously accomplished. And yet, from all I can hear of him, he hasn't a friend in the world that he hasn't bought. And therefore, quite a suitable affinity, I should think, for her diabolical highness the princess, laughed Grace. Turning away towards the window, what a pair they would make. And yet, how? I can scarcely agree with you. Although, of course, I can scarcely say that I know him. Still, I must say that he gives me the idea of a man with an immense reserve of power in him. Then, he's so different from the ordinary millionaire. And whatever you may say about your men at the clubs and in the city, there's no doubt that the women like him. And some of them, I suppose, would very much like him to like them, just as that evil-eyed princess would, he replied a little harshly. Still, as long as you are not one of them, dear, it doesn't much matter. Is there any truth in the rumor that the proud lady Georgina herself would not object to see him and his millions at her feet? Really, Herod, I cannot allow you to talk about my friends like that. It's only another proof that you men at your clubs are just as bad gossips and tattlers as we women are in our drawing rooms. I know there is a rumor of that sort, but I don't believe a word of it. Personally, I think Georgina would very much rather make a match between the princess and his majesty than marry him herself. And now I must say good morning for the present and go and look after Herod II. What are you going to do with yourself till lunchtime? Oh, I'm going to Motown Town, as they say in the States. I've got a little meeting on at Winchester House about that new coal mine of ours that's going to make us even more scandalously rich than we are. And then there is that express ocean mail. I had a note last night from Davidson to say that our mutual friend, the Go King, wants a hand in that, and I don't exactly like the prospect. It's a bit too clever and too rich to make a satisfactory partner, I think. What nonsense, she said with smiling reproach. You know perfectly well you could hold your own with him or anybody else. I've heard about some of your achievements in the city, you know, and I don't think that a man who can pile thousands upon thousands in the disgraceful way that you are doing. But we have much more than enough already, and at the same time get yourself talked about as the ablest of the young members of the house and a possible cabinet minister, has very much to fear from Mr. Hadley Simmons. Oh, and she went on with a quite feminine divergence. While you are in town, do try and find out what people in the city are saying about this Institute of Psychic Science. It's Georgina's at-home day, and I'm going. There will be a lot of people and they'll all be talking about it. So, of course, I want to have something to say too. Your ladyship's commands shall, of course, be obeyed, he laughed. 
and then he went on more seriously. But won't that be a little bit awkward for you, dear? Certainly not, she replied with a touch of the dignity that he loved so much in her tone. Everybody knows the story, and my real friends think about it as we do. As for the others, well, if we were comparatively poor and of not much consequence, they would probably visit the sins of the uncle upon the knees. But we are a great deal too rich for that. Now, good morning, dear, and mind you bring me back a nice big budget of news from the stubby old city. Then she kissed him and disappeared to spend a couple of hours of unalloyed pleasure in the society of the new master of the house. End of chapter 17